Welcome to the Photo Ethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number one, we'll be talking with Amanda Mustard about the ethics of finding your own voice. Amanda Mustard is an independent photojournalist and filmmaker based between Bangkok, Thailand and Pennsylvania, USA. She's a contributor for Redux Pictures and has worked with clients such as the New York Times, Associated Press, Johns Hopkins, Al Jazeera, the Smithsonian, and many others. Amanda is an advisor for the Photography Ethics Center and an advocate for the protection and sustainability of the freelance community and gender equality in the media industry. wondering if we could maybe start by just telling me a little bit about the kind of work that you do. Sure thing. So um, I'm an American photographer that's currently based in Bangkok, and I usually do um, a wide range of work from news to I do a lot of work on animal welfare and conservation. I do um, some work on health issues and the intersections of gender issues and social issues. Um, and when I, uh, have the ability to, I love to kind of photograph, um, subcultures and different communities that I think are misunderstood. That sounds brilliant. And I guess, how did you sort of get into those interests or what led you to, to the things that you're, that you're working on now? It's, it's interesting to kind of look back on my own career and, the transformations that I've made. I feel that I started out, I was self-taught and I um, moved to Egypt during the Arab Spring and and kind of just, you know, learned through experience and observation. And so I think that I started out photographing what I thought I was supposed to, you know, there was this kind of unset expectation in photojournalism that, you know, conflict photography was really, really um, revered and and celebrated. And, you know, being so young, I started when I was 21, I was like, okay, well, I, you know, I'm going to look at the photographers that I respect and, and try to follow in their footsteps. And, you know, I guess the biggest problem with that is that, you know, they made their name in an industry that financially just doesn't exist anymore. Um, so it's, it's just a path you can't follow. So, you know, I had a lot of bumps in the road, um, just, trying to break into an industry that was no longer really set up for freelancers, especially in a breaking news situation. So, but um, as far as the the stories that I was telling, you know, it kind of makes me sad to look back and, and think of how much time I spent photographing what I thought I was supposed to. And then slowly over time, I realized that, you know, I don't think that's exactly where I can contribute anything new um, necessarily. And that I started to pivot towards, you know, content and topics that, that I thought that I could, I could um, offer a different perspective with. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea about, I think, you know, what can we contribute? What, what am I adding to this? I think that that's something that maybe we don't reflect on all that much. Um, I guess would that sort of go in the category of things that you wish you knew when you started out or or what other oh, things maybe? <laughs> yeah, there's so many things. Yeah, I could talk for ages about this. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot, you know. And, and on the topic of ethics, I think it was really interesting 
breaking into the industry in a conflict situation where the story that I was covering was, you know, a very, very, it was, it was international news at the time. Um, and a lot of the behavior of photographers that I saw that would parachute in during big events, you know, it was just, it was very confusing to me because again, I was not formally trained, so I didn't really know how the industry worked. And I just thought, well, you know, we all, spend a lot of time here and we learn the language and we just, you know, invest ourselves to be able to properly represent what's happening to the best of our ability. Um, and I didn't see that super frequently, especially in a breaking news situation. And I found that to be quite frustrating how, how often I would be in situations that maybe weren't so dramatic, but the photos I'd see published the next day were like wild. And, you know, I'd be getting texts from my family like, oh, Egypt's on fire. This is wild. Like, are you okay? And there was always this divide between what I was seeing and, and in the media representation of what was going on and what I was seeing on the ground. So I think one of the things that I did to kind of try and um, clarify that, I guess, was for myself and for whoever wanted to watch it, was I would like put a GoPro on the, the top of my camera and edit these little videos of... Um, the, the moments around when I would take a certain picture. So you could see the context that that usually quite dramatic photo was taken in. And it, it, you really can, you know, cherry, cherry pick your moments. And I mean, that is what is considered to be great news photography. But I just felt it was a bit at odds with my own values and ethics and how I wanted to portray things accurately and with nuance and depth. So I think that I actually started to try and shift away from the day-to-day -day news situations and um, look at quieter, more long-term stories. I think that GoPro idea is so brilliant and so interesting because you're completely right. Like, I think this is a conversation that comes up a lot in when I lead workshops and things is that we're always cropping reality. You know, we're always mm -hmm. engaging in this process of selection and the things that people see is such a small fraction of everything that's going on. So I think that that idea of the GoPro is is really um, spot on. And I think it's also really good probably at creating a more educated audience as well for our photographs. Because I think, you know, I think that's a whole nother topic, but it's something we could definitely talk about at some point about, you know, what are the responsibilities of, of viewers in terms of critically engaging with the photographs that they see as well? So I think that that's a really great educational tool. For sure. It, yeah, it made, it made its rounds, a few of the videos, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I hope it was educational. And I wish I, I could have had the energy to, to, keep it, to keep it up. But I did move away from, um, you know, breaking news in the way that it was in the Arab Spring. But I, I do think that that's a really interesting question. I'm definitely not the best to answer <laughs> as far as the responsibility of viewers, but I do feel that there's a, a it's really challenging now for the amount of, of like the oversaturation that there is of material and content and news to just consume on a daily basis that, you know, the thoughtfulness and sometimes time that it takes to make sure that, you know, we're, we're seeing quality and accurate representation of news events. It's, it's hard. Like I, I really sympathize with people. I know that you have spoken a little bit about um, the ethics of photography and the ethics um, in the photojournalism industry. 
um, already in, in, in our conversation here. But I, and I also know that you're very vocal more broadly about ethical issues across the industry. And I guess I was wondering if there was a specific moment that sort of catalyzed that interest or um, created a shift in the way that you work, if there was any one experience that you had that sort of started that for you. Sure. So I think it started a bit more micro and then became macro. Um, I really became passionate about the ethics of how freelancers were treated in conflict scenarios and the risks that we were taking um, for the very, very little fee that we were getting. There were no insurance protections. Like safety was was the last priority for a lot of freelancers when we were working over there. And it was really frustrating that there was the shift um, largely in the industry that publications were taking less risks with their staffers and relying more on, on freelancers to provide them coverage, but they were not extending the same protections to them. So that was something that I, you know, became very, very passionate about. And I worked, you know, I was on the board of the Frontline Freelance Register for a few years and worked with the ACOS Alliance to really try and facilitate those conversations um, between publications and organizations and journalists to try and bridge some of those massive gaps. And, and from there, you know, the more I got interested in ethics, it just became a larger issue. You know, now we're now fast forward, we're talking about, you know, representation and equity, both for those in front of the camera and behind the camera. Um, and there's some really, really wild disparities. You know, the more that we've learned, the more we're like, oh man, we have got a problem on our hands. You know, most of the images that the world has seen um, are through a white male lens. And that has not necessarily, you know, served us all well as, as humankind. So my, I guess the way I feel is that if I'm going to continue to be a part of this industry, I need to keep working towards and contributing to efforts to make it a place that I feel welcome and that others feel welcome. Um, because otherwise I don't, I, <laughs> I, I lose hope too easily. Yeah, I, I think that that's extremely valuable, just valuable to hear. I wonder if there's anything sort of tangible or practical that you, you know, would recommend to people in terms of working toward a, a better industry or an industry that takes these things into account in a more um, meaningful way. It, do you have any sort of strategies or anything that you're doing practically that others could could learn from or take on board? I think that um, we have a lot of power when we're holding a camera, especially in communities that we don't belong to. And we will all benefit by taking some time and just being a little bit more thoughtful about those power dynamics and how we can make a little bit more effort to make sure that the people that we're photographing um, understand, you know, their role in this and that they are being kind enough to allow us, you know, access to their life and their story. And that in return, we should be thoughtful and make sure that they know what we're going to do with that. And of course, that's not possible in all situations. And But it's something that a lot of people are getting quite defensive about in the current conversation. And we can, you know, it's really for the betterment of all of us. If, 
if we can all just, you know, 20, 30% more effort <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, in these moments that we're planning shoots or, you know, out in the field, if we can just all be a little bit more thoughtful, you know, the entire industry and the people that we're taking photographs of will, you know, have more dignity, have more representation. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point as well, because I think that, you know, it's almost like the nature of the flash news cycle doesn't really give space to reflection or to um, working on a particularly ethics-based or ethics-driven practice. Um, and I guess I just wonder how much agency photographers really have in that dynamic um, and how what maybe photographers can do to, to push toward that. Because it seems to me that I think a lot of these conversations and a lot of things that people will say to me is that, you know, the photo editors are the ones who actually sort of have that kind of control that that could open a space for a more ethical practice. Oh, I 100% agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of that's one of my beefs here is that, you know, uh, people in, in positions like mine, you know, where we're freelancers that, you know, especially like as women that like don't have as many opportunities as we'd like already, you know, we can talk about this until we are blue in the face. We can post on social media. Um, we can talk on panels, but like we don't have the actual hiring power. And I really strongly believe that the onus is on the gatekeepers and the editors who do have the direct ability to say who gets access to opportunities. And I think one of the most beneficial things that can be done is you're correct in saying that, you know, in news situations that it, it, is, it is very difficult to be really go above and beyond when things are just happening, you know, moment to moment. But if hiring practices were to put people in that situation that are from the community or already kind of have an extra level of understanding and nuance of what's going on, that would solve a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And it would start to change this kind of culture of quote unquote vulturism that we have. Is vulturism a word? I don't know. We're going to make like it, it a word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that, that absolutely. I think that makes, that makes so much sense. And you spoke a little bit earlier about sort of how financially maybe things aren't the same as they were even when you first started out. Um, and I guess I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more about what you mean for somebody who maybe isn't as familiar with that. Oh man. Yeah. This is something that weighs heavily on me. Um, you know, it's incredibly, this is an incredibly prohibitive industry to break into if you are not independently wealthy or, you know, kind of came out of journalism or photography school. It's been, it's been very difficult, you know, and, and I'm in a position now, I'll be completely honest, like, I'm not sure how long I can keep doing this at this rate, especially now that with the impact of the pandemic on being a freelancer. It's just, it's really difficult. I have worked, I think, five days all year and it's July. And I know that, you know, a lot of people are facing that in the pandemic, but um, still, I don't know if I'll ever like have enough money to, to get a house or, you know, kind of move up this ladder of life. Um, 
So one of the biggest things that I tell young photographers that are looking to get into this, especially photographers that will have to make some serious sacrifices in order to try and break into the industry, is to really, really consider the reality of the state of the industry financially. You know, it is, it is not what it was five years ago, 10 years ago, especially 20 years ago. So a lot of the, you know, big name photographers that we you know, revere right now, we, you can't be them anymore. That doesn't exist anymore. And even a lot of them can't afford a new camera anymore. And I think it's so important for people to know that, that there are not a lot of opportunities out there. And, you know, I think if somebody would have told me how hard it would be financially and how, you know, the arguments that you'd have, fighting for, you know, 50 or 60 bucks a photo that you just were, you know, tear gas to take. It's just, it's, it's not fair a lot of the time, but it's important that young photographers understand what they're going to get into and what the stakes are before they really commit to, you know, investing tons of money and equipment and this and that. That is not to say that, you should not pursue it, but to pursue it full time and rely on it as your as your full time income is something people should really seriously consider before they make the jump. Um, I think it's amazing. You know, I'll use my colleague uh, Alex Potter as an example. She's wonderful. Um, she is a registered nurse, and she'll work part of the year in a hospital, and then she'll you know go. Um, in past years, she would then go over to Yemen and and work there and. Now she's even worked and she's a a forest firefighter, um, which is awesome. So she kind of like works on all of these, these things in order to, you know, make a living, but it doesn't mean she doesn't have to tell stories. But I think that there is this pressure to like really dedicate yourself and, and make being a photographer an identity and, you know, put it all on the line. And I really disagree with that. You know, that is how I started that because that's what I thought that you had to do. Um, and it's just it's just setting you up for burnout in a lot of ways. And it and it doesn't set you up to be able to do your best work. So I just hope that, you know, young photographers don't feel any shame if they decide to just to do it on the side. I had a such valuable advice and really interesting, especially coming from somebody who I don't know. I think that you're you're really a model for the way that many people might want to go about the industry, you know, in your experience and sort of the trajectory that you've taken. So I think it's really useful and, and valuable to hear from you that maybe that's not all it's always cracked up to be and not maybe as good as it necessarily looks on paper. For sure. And I think it, it, especially right now is a really important time for me to kind of backtrack and, and you know, make sure that people know that because I, you know, have been doing a lot of reflecting right now, going back to the issues of, you know, ethics and the larger industry and like who gets to tell what story. And, you know, I think the most important thing we can do is is ask ourselves some tough questions. Um, and, you know, one of mine is why did I feel like I needed to, as a white American, move to Egypt during the Arab Spring to start my career? Why was that something that I knew would be celebrated and rewarded. Um, and then it was, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, you know, young photographers see how to kind of pursue the road ahead. And looking back, I find I have a lot of problems with it. And, 
You know, I don't regret, uh, I don't, I don't really believe in having regrets anyways, but I don't, you know, regret how I got here. But now that I know what I know and the ethical weight of my experience and so many others, um, where it's, it's kind of like a very ego driven motivation to get in. Like I got to get my name out there. I got to build myself up. And it's just like, it's more about the photographer than it is about the story or the people, you know, that are on the other side of the camera. So yeah, that's something that I, I would rather flip the table and, and, and try to encourage people to instead, you know, you do not have to travel far. You know, if I've learned anything it's that there are stories in your own community that are that need to be told and that you have the perspective to be able to tell the best. So I think that that's all really quite interesting and really speaks to maybe what I know of your of your own trajectory and sort of the direction that a lot of your work has taken, right? Because you started in Egypt, then you transitioned to maybe more longitudinal storytelling in Thailand, and now you're actually returning home. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. You're definitely right about that. Um, I think after my time in Egypt and a little bit in Thailand, um, a lot of my experiences started to give me a new perspective about my own background and my own story that I, I definitely was quite blind to, you know, as, as a lot of us are, you know, if, if we don't leave our communities and our certain situations that we're in. So, yeah. As I was, you know, working on a lot of issues around sexual assault, and I was sexually assaulted a number of times myself, and, you know, learning the language around that and how to kind of, you know, heal and recover from all of that, I started looking at at my family in a whole different way. Whereas, you know, it's not that I found out any new information, but I realized that uh, my, my grandfather was a notorious sex predator and pedophile that wreaked havoc in my family and in so many other families. He was a chiropractor and and he abused scores of people and largely got away with it for his whole life. So, you know, that was something I was quite normalized to. And it sounds crazy, but like, I didn't think much of it because I was at the molten hot core of it uh, my whole life. But then stepping away um, from the U.S., you know, made me, made me realize that like that, that's the story I should tell. And, you know, I sat down and I interviewed my grandpa and he was super candid with me. And that just opened up this entire new world for me where it was like, oh man, you know, I can travel all over the world and, and look for stories that like really mean something and really dig into the nuance of it. But, but this, you know, this inside me is like where I have the most strength. And so now fast forward six years, um, we're about to start editing a doc- my first documentary film on this story. Um, and it's, it's been a wild, very, very challenging experience. But I think the best lesson that I've learned is that you do not need to travel 4,000 miles to, you know, find stories to tell, especially if you're financially limited and you're just starting out. So many people write me and are like, oh, you know, like I don't have money yet, but like I want to travel overseas too. Yes, that's great for a number of reasons, but I don't think that should be the main motivation for, you know, storytelling. When I think you can look around you, maybe, you know, someone in your family has a certain illness, maybe 
there's, you know, a social issue happening in your community that you have special access to, that is so valuable. And we are starting to see a change in the industry that is starting to celebrate, you know, stories that were previously overlooked from smaller communities. So if I could give any, any advice to young photographers, it's like, please do not think that you need to hop on a plane. You know, you can always, always start where you're at. Yeah, I wonder along those lines about if people are going to be, you know, starting on their own communities and and working on stories maybe within their own families like you've done. Like I can imagine, obviously, that's a, a very sensitive topic and I'm sure it's a very difficult topic to embark upon for yourself. Um, but I can Im- also imagine that the ethics of doing a story about your own family and about your own community can be very complicated and would differ maybe than if you're doing a story about somebody else's community. So what advice could you give people maybe who are going to do a story about their own community or what experiences have you learned through that process? Oh man. I mean, I'm continuing to get my ass kicked on this front. (laughs) It's really hard. It's really, really hard. And, um, I think I have quite a unique situation, but maybe not. Um, Distance is a really important thing, making sure that when you're working on these things, having a place to stay that is your own space that you can, you know, recover in and restore yourself in is so important. So like if you're going to certain communities, do not stay with them, you know, even if it saves some money, you know, make sure you have your own space to return to when you're done shooting. Um, I also it's a little bit different in the context of a film because the teams are bigger than with photo. And I am doing photo as well with, with my family project. But I think surrounding myself with mentors and colleagues who can, I could constantly bounce ideas off of because um, objectivity can be really difficult some days when you're almost part of the story or it's an issue that like affects you personally. Um, you know, get a therapist, you know, I don't know where I would be in my work if I did not have a therapist and, you know, really lean on colleagues and mentors to, to give you advice, give you feedback and make sure that, you know, you're staying on, on the right path. It's really, really hard, but I have a co-director on my film and I wouldn't be able to do it without her to kind of, she has the outside perspective when I get stuck on the inside. Absolutely. No, I think that's, that's, sounds like an incredibly important thing just for your own health and well-being as well. And in terms of like how you approach your family members, does that look quite similar, I guess, to how you would approach people who aren't your family members? Or does that have a different process? Um, Because I can imagine that could be very complicated. Indeed it is. Yeah, it it can be really, it can be really exhausting. It's, I try to make it the same as much as I can. It helps me and my process. And because so much of the film is, has a very journalistic approach to it, I'm essentially investigating the crimes of my grandfather that, you know, he largely did not face consequence for. And at the same time, you know, I, I have this responsibility to my family, the people that I love to, you know, really be mindful of, of bringing this trauma back up for everybody. So, I, I am, I do feel very confident in my approach on, in that regard, but how it differs from other people that I've photographed that aren't my family 
I mean, it's, I guess it's an issue of boundaries. You know, boundaries get really, really muddled because when you leave a shoot, you know, overseas or, you know, outside of your community, you leave, you know, it might be weird if they start blowing up your phone or, you know, start kind of, you know, talking to you about a lot of personal stuff, whereas, you know, everything goes amongst family. So it's really on me to make sure that the that the journalistic process and the filmmaking process has really, really clear boundaries. And that's just something that I'm very, very verbal with my family about. Like we talk through it and kind of what my intentions are and what the boundaries are for the, you know, interaction between us. Yeah, I, I think that, that could be quite difficult as well, depending on like, I don't know how close you would be to your family, but I can imagine that for a lot of people, you know, their families are also the people that, that are their sounding boards, you know, so if you're wanting to bounce off ideas or get opinions or, or second looks at things, um, you really need that team around you that you described, I guess, because you can't use your family for that in a way that you might be able to use them for that in other aspects of your work or your life. For sure. I mean, in my personal situation, I'm, I'm definitely the black sheep of the family and I'm, I'm very, very different from everyone in my family. Um, so that's a little bit easier for me, but I do think it is important when you are finding, you know, those shoulders to lean on that they are outside and not on the inside. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't have to have like a relatable experience to be able to, you know, help you with your own perspective, but yeah, that's something that um, it's really, it's it's just boundaries. It's really, really important to have those boundaries. And on the flip side, I do really want um, this filmmaking experience with my family to be collaborative, you know? And in that regard, I find that it is more rewarding than any other story I've done because I'm, I'm so close to them and it is collectively our story, I really want to hear what they want out of it as well. And if they have any ideas, you know, so for some of the scenes, um, we talk about the past and things that had happened in the family while um, I'm taking portraits of them and I'm allowing them to direct their portrait session and draw on their own experiences. And I kind of just, I take the hands off the wheel and I, I really let them, you know, take a hold of the, the creative direction of it. So there is really interesting ways that I think it is, it, it is a little bit more rewarding because you're so close. That's all really brilliant to hear about, about your work in this way and, and about your personal experience of, of working so close to home. I guess in sum, I'd just like to ask you, what does photography ethics mean to you? Photography ethics is so important to me because I feel like it is this unwritten contract between the person with the camera and ultimately a lot of the power and the, and the people that we're taking photos of. And if, if they're going to give me something, then the ethics ensures that 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 transaction is is respectful and and dignified and will ensure that that harm does not come to them as a result of of the photography. Well, in that vein, I would wonder if you could maybe tell me a little bit about where you see us going from here. Oh, yeah, that's a big big question. Um I'm really excited and 
exhausted <laughs> at the current moment. Um, I think it's really, really great that, you know, the, the, this larger dialogue around representation um, and ethics is, is truly exploding, <laughs> you know, in the photojournalism industry. And I just really, I know there's a lot of defensiveness. There's a lot of generational clashes happening. I think it's, there's so much that I find quite disheartening about it. But at the same time, we need to push through. It's great that it's happening. It's all coming to the surface and we just need to keep pushing and we all need to be vulnerable and be willing to to look at look at our own our own pasts and, and our own work and and think, is this the best way to go about things? You know, how can we all make little changes that will make sure that this industry allows more representation in front of the camera and behind the camera? Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photoethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode number one are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Martha Tedesse on unlearning and learning ethics. Ethics.